welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I have for you two senior health reporters for Insider, Anna Medeiros Miller and Julia Naftulin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right, so Anna and Julia, you know, there are patients right now calling out medical gaslighting. What is this about, Julia? So yes, um, this is a term that it describes when medical professionals are making a patient believe that their symptoms are all in their head. Um, it's a term you might have heard before in a more interpersonal relationship setting, whether it's like a partner gaslighting or a family member. However, it can also occur in a medical setting, um, which could mean a healthcare provider dismissing a person's symptoms, denying certain tests or treatments. Um, or ultimately misdiagnosing them. And it's something that primarily affects women, people of color, young people, and those with obesity. Wow, all right. So it's, it seems like it's something that's very scary that when you know or sense something's going on with your body and you go to a medical care provider and this individual is essentially telling you you're not experiencing what you're experiencing. And I know that parent or patients are really sharing their stories of these years long medical misdiagnosis. Anna, what are you seeing? Yeah, I think a lot of people are coming forward for a lot of reasons. I mean, this is nothing new sadly and in some ways we've made a lot of progress since way back when when women were diagnosed with hysteria um, basically being told that anything was in their heads or due to hormones and um, we've moved away from that but now especially in the age of social media and um, you know people are sharing their stories and, and it's taking off because other people relate to that um, they have their own stories to share and people are getting angry about it as they should. Yeah, rightly so. And I definitely think that social media plays a driver in this, you know, like you said, because you can connect with more people, people sharing their stories, things going viral, that it creates a platform that goes, it seems to go further than that WMD or WebMD kind of arena where you can just go ahead and try to look things up. But it's more of having that almost one on one conversation, or at least know that you're not the only one experiencing. And so Julia, when it comes to fully understanding the breadth of medical gaslighting, what are some of the things that it could include? Yeah, so um, I think you know you bring up a great point. Like a primate, people talking about this is really bringing to light um, that this is happening to a lot of folks. I think a great example that's currently uh, in the news is that Serena Williams she penned an essay in Elle magazine recently talking about her own experience having. Um, you know, telling doctors and nurses after she gave birth C-section that she was experiencing pain. And she um, asked for certain pain medication and certain tests and was denied them first. So I think that's one example, um, you know, saying you have certain types of pain and asking for treatment for something and being denied that um, multiple times. Uh, Williams talks about that in her essay um, and ultimately talked about how she requested the lung test that detected that she had potentially fatal blood clots. So um, yeah, it's an issue that affects a lot of folks and um, also others have talked about being misdiagnosed with the wrong condition. And I know Anna's interviewed some of those people. Yes, um, and it sounds like this is something that uh, a lot of women primarily experience, but also, as I understand, the research shows that Black people um, are likely to experience this at higher levels, um, or it's just more prevalent. And I'm wondering, Anna, do you have any idea why? 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a systemic issue. Doctors live in our society and they're subject to these biases. Um, there's been research that shows, you know, medical students rate black people's pain as less than um, than white people. And that in turn affects how they actually treat those patients and they might under prescribe pain medications, for example. And a lot, and you know, I like to think that these medical students and doctors are not outwardly thinking in their head that somebody's pain is less than the others, but these are all systemic cultural um, issues that we have to deal with. And fortunately, some medical schools are starting to change that, but it's going to take a long time in a lot of these conversations. Yeah, I definitely think so, especially if something like this is going to happen to Serena Williams, who you can't. Think maybe the hospital thinks she can't afford it. So it's a matter of the fact that they just simply didn't want to believe her. They wanted to think that this individual who speaks multiple languages and is at the top of her game in terms of tennis, but also is just an extremely well traveled and well educated individual, has no idea what she's experiencing or what she knows about her body. And that can be very scary, especially if you're a black person, in part because we have to code switch, we have to jump through hoops, you know, especially this angry black woman. So I can't imagine what she went through in trying to save her own life and conveying this to medical professionals. And so also, Julia, I know you had mentioned that Anna has interviewed several other people. Anna, are there any other stories that you would like to bring to light? Oh my gosh, there's so many, sadly. But um, you know, I think another population we hear a lot about are people in bigger bodies and how they're also subject to the stigma that um, what you look like reflects your actual health. And I've heard so many stories of people for years and years going with different complaints to their doctors and they just are told over and over again, lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. And sometimes they do it and guess what? The cancer is still there. So um, it's it's really disturbing and something, yeah, again, we still need to talk about um, and just make medical professionals aware of you know where they're coming from and where their patients might be coming from. And as you said, like trusting that a, a patient knows their body in a way that the doctor never can. Um, Yeah, without a doubt, I think that that's something that I would at least recommend to people. If you know there's something wrong with your body, don't just take that no that you may get from a medical professional and get a second opinion or push harder and push back. And that's very difficult for some of us, especially people of color, particularly black people, where we are stigmatized. I have an understanding that there are things written in our notes, like patient may be difficult and whatnot. And we are already thought to be violent and all of these negative stereotypes types that impede our availability to get good health care. So the idea of pushing back can be very scary and upsetting. Have either of you, Julia or Anna, run into a situation where somebody did push back just to figure out that it didn't go well for them? Oh, interesting. Um, you know, I just published a story today where it was a 20 year old man, young man um, who, which is another kind of category that I do think suffers from this a little bit more is just younger people. You know, there's a power dynamic with doctors, um, no matter who you are, but especially the younger you are. And if you're experiencing something like this man was, which ended up being a very serious stroke, we all have, um, and doctors are subject to this too, you know, the assumption that stroke only happens to older people. And so they think that young people are, 
maybe on drugs. I've heard about them thinking that somebody's drunk. Um, they kind of go through all of these other kind of typical young youth issues before they come to the fact that maybe this person is having a brain hemorrhage. Um, and this it took a lot of different family members going back to the hospital, going back, pushing the doctors for more. Um, and he got a lot of false diagnoses before they actually figured out what happened. And at that point, it was too late to conduct um, the surgery that he needed to be able to live the life that he used to. Wow. And so in situations like this, the lawyer in me automatically thinks I want to file a malpractice lawsuit. I I need in some way to ensure that this does not happen again. And I need someone to be held accountable because I went to you for care. I explained my symptoms and your behavior fell below the standard of care. Julia, do you happen to know, are you seeing any malpractice lawsuits? Is there any way to curb this kind of behavior from doctors? So most of the folks that we've spoken to um, haven't sued a hospital or a provider. A lot of these folks just want to share their stories and kind of be advocates so this doesn't happen to other folks, um, like you said, and kind of encourage others to speak up as well. Um, but there are you know, medical malpractice lawyers if that's a route you want to take. And um, I believe Anna's interviewed someone who um, actually went this route as well. Um, but there are other options. Um, I think, you know, Anna brought up the power dynamic um, with young folks and doctors. And I think that um, the fact, like, Remembering that um, a lot of medical literature focuses on white men and how symptoms occur in them, and just having, you know, remembering that when you go to the doctor and thinking, I, I should speak up, you know, feel empowered to speak up and realize that it is a systemic issue, and you should always use your gut and your intuition. Um, I think that's number one. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any else thing you want to add to that, Anna? Yeah, I think just reiterating, um, bringing. If if you're in a situation that you can be prepared, you know, maybe it's not an emergency situation, but if you can bring a trusted loved one with you to the doctor, um, who maybe is not in a marginalized group, who can speak up on your behalf or can at least listen to the doctor, um, take notes, maybe record. That's good practice, um, no matter what your condition is, and just to. You're going to be overwhelmed when you go to the doctor and you feel like they're not going to believe them. So if you can have an advocate by your side, um, even better. Yeah, it's kind of sad this thought that I need to bring a middle-aged white male with me everywhere just so people will treat me fairly. Um, but you know, unfortunately, that's how a lot of our society rolls. Uh, but I really do appreciate all of the journalism you all are doing, and especially uplifting this issue when it comes to medical gaslighting. And so we only have a little less than a minute left. But I guess what is next in terms of the radar that you all may be researching uh, as senior health reporters for Insider? So I'm currently um, working as we get closer to the um, Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision. I'm starting to see how things are affecting um, abortion on the ground in these states where trigger laws are starting to come up. And if Roe versus Wade is overturned, which a lot of folks are anticipating, um, you know, abortion could really be in jeopardy in a lot of different states going forward. So that's something I'm looking at right now. All right, Anna. Yeah, I, I'm looking more at kind of the different months in American Women's Health Month and Stroke Month, and I like to feature kind of different um, conditions that come up. So, women, young women with stroke who've been ignored has, has been one of my areas of focus. 
All right, thank you so much for the work that you do. That's senior health reporters for Insider, Anna Madaris Miller and Julia Naftalin. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's Adrian Lawrence back at you on TYT's The Conversation. And now here to talk about some voting issues that have been coming up and are not very progressive. I am joined by Kat Calvin, founder of Spread the Vote and Project ID. Thanks for joining us, Kat. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, so I know that the US Supreme Court recently waged an assault on voting rights that it kind of seemed to hit a new low with this ruling that threw out Wisconsin's redrawn electoral map. Why was this ruling so shocking? Well, it wasn't shocking to anyone I think who's been paying attention for the last several years. Um, you know, ever since the uh, Supreme Court started striking down pieces of the Voting Rights Act, I'm um, in 2013 and then again, you know, over and over again, I'm um, all in, into uh, 2020. Uh, the rulings of the Supreme Court have made it pretty clear uh, that the majority is not uh, here to fight for voting rights. Uh, and so I didn't, I, I don't really ever find one of their rulings surprising uh, because they're they're following a pattern that we've seen them follow for a while. Yes, um, and that is something that's very unfortunate, uh, especially because you know we're supposed to have this whole democracy thing, whatever that means. Um, but as far as Wisconsin goes with that redrawn map, it's my understanding that the redrawn map, it, it, it would have included a black community, is that correct? Um, yeah, as far as I'm clear, it uh, would have included a black community. You know, I think that the thing with that we're seeing with redistricting um, and that the Supreme Court has confirmed is uh, that there are so many ways that you can claim or pretend that your redistricting is not based on race, even when it is, uh, that the courts are willing to accept that you can cut out whole black communities or you know communities of other colors or whatever, um, and say, oh well, it's not because of race, it's because of you know these other things. They're all you know don't cut their lawns well, or they're all you know it's all based on on partisan. You're allowed to gerrymander based on uh, political party, etc. And so you can make all these excuses, um, you know, and then what we're seeing is that the courts are going to uphold it. Yes, and that's something that I know none of us want, uh, who actually do want everyone to have access to vote. And something else with this Wisconsin decision, I know that did shock some people in part because you kind of wonder how long they're gonna do this, but they essentially issued it in somewhat of an emergency ruling using the shadow docket. That docket that's typically used for inconsequential matters. And a ruling like this would definitely seem to be of consequence. But I guess, what are your thoughts on why you think the court opted to use the shadow docket here? <laughs> so I, as you probably remember, Bush v. Gore, and when the Supreme Court was like, we're gonna issue this ruling. but don't let it count for any precedent. It's just this one time, it doesn't really matter. And so again, this thing where I'm like, hmm, we've been here before. Uh, you know, I think that uh, we are at a place where the Supreme Court, and certainly we've seen with sort of particular new members, they have an agenda. You know, we've seen this now with Ginny Thomas, right? Like the days of us being able to pretend that these are objective, nonpartisan justices that are here for the good of the country, like we we can't pretend that anymore. And uh, what we're seeing now is that 
they're not above pulling sort of sneaky measures uh, in order to a hope maybe no one will pay attention to this, right? Or to hope that you know, well, if we say that we're we're uh, bringing down this ruling, but that you know there shouldn't be any precedent here. This is just this one time. It's just an emergency uh, that it will uh, avoid scrutiny. Um, which in the day of 24-hour news, I don't know how they think that's possible. Um, but you know, we're very much in this place where you know, and I think we are realizing, and Congress obviously has realized, like, oh, the Supreme Court is not the Supreme Court that we thought we had, that we designed to have, that is impartial, that is objective. That is nonpartisan. In fact, we have some actors here who very much have an agenda, and they will go to any lengths uh, to get that agenda, uh, you know, push that agenda forward, even if it's using really uh, unusual and shocking measures, like you know, saying that this is some sort of inconsequential emergency measure when it very clearly is not. No, it's not. And the thing is, you're absolutely right in terms of the Supreme Court. It lost any kind of legitimacy that it had. I think there were differing opinions on which judges were legitimate at certain times during kind of the Supreme Court history in more recent years. But now it's just this overarching theme and thought that the Supreme Court is really just an extension of the Republican Party and the GOP as opposed to an actually independent body that is supposed to objectively interpret the law. And we also saw that in this recent Wisconsin opinion by virtue of the fact that the Supreme Court has embraced this thing they call the Purcell rule or Purcell principle, kind of this general idea that courts shouldn't intervene in election disputes when it's close to an election time. And they seem to have no issue straying here as well. I really think that this is impacting how people vote and also whether they vote. Is that something you're finding? I am. I mean, you know, to me, this is absolutely terrifying on a lot of levels. You know, not having a legitimate Supreme Court is really scary. When I was in law school, I had a Supreme Court calendar and I'd be like, happy birthday, learned hand, you know, and like it was it was the Supreme Court, right? Like that's the the thing we have. You may not trust Congress, you may not trust the president, but we trust SCOTUS. And so for that to be gone, I think, you know, we're in a place now very clearly where we're seeing people either move to wild extremes on either side of the line or just give up because why does it matter, right? You can you know, elect people who aren't gonna change anything. You have a Supreme Court that's not going to uphold justice. There are a lot of people who are really just giving up. You know, We talked to people about voting every day and a lot of people who've never voted and when we try to talk to them about voting. They're like, yeah, but why should we? Nothing happens, no one changes anything and you can't trust any of the institutions and it's Difficult to argue that, you know, and we talk a lot about local elections and how important those are because when you talk to people about national politics, it's not only disheartening, but it's it's scary. Uh, and it's something that needs to you know be changed and fixed quickly, but that there is no quick change for. Um, and you know, I don't know, for me, it definitely keeps me up at night. Yeah, and I'm happy to know that you are just as much as a nerd as I was when it comes to. <laughs> I remember when Antonin Scalia died, like it felt like I was punched in the gut and I loathed the man. But still, it's like this is a Supreme Court, this is a justice, and it was the first justice to die on my watch, I thought. Now I just look at these, you know, these nine up here, and I'm like, well, like, <laughs> it's like, okay, this is what we're yeah. doing. It's yeah. just, it definitely seems to have lost any sense of legitimacy as well as any kind of respect. Um, yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Uh, and mm-hmm. also, what's pretty disgusting is what's going out, uh, going on out in Ohio. 
where there's a proposed law that would require state voters to show photo identification at the polls. This would seem mm. to create just another nonsensical barrier to voter access, right? I mean, look, everybody knows by now, if anything, because I've been shouting it from the rooftops and I assume everybody's listening to me, that voter ID laws are you know, absurd. We've proven over and over and over again, voter fraud isn't happening at the polls. Uh, we know for a fact because we have videos and quotes of people saying we need voter ID laws because it'll stop poor people from voting because it'll stop brown people from voting, etc. You know, my organization every single day gets IDs. I'm in my car because I just took a bunch of house and house people to the DMV so that they can have IDs for everything they need, but also to vote. And you know, it is such a a great way to prevent the over 21 million eligible voters in this country who don't have ID from voting, who happen to you know, usually be uh, unemployed or underemployed, who usually are returning citizens, who are unhoused, who are elderly. Uh, you know, all of these different demographics uh, that you know people in power, honestly, on both sides of the aisle, would like to prevent from voting to vote. And we have state after state after state that is deciding to implement these laws knowing full well that they have nothing to do with voter fraud and everything to do with voter exclusion. Yeah, definitely. It's just how the founding fathers intended it. White <laughs> male property owners, i.e. Yeah. white men with money, that's who they wanted to vote. So, seriously, and also because um, I had read that it's not like you had mentioned, it's not that people are voting illegally in Ohio, that the state data reported 0.0005% of the nearly 6 million votes in the 2020 election were fraudulent. And that individual was caught or those three or four individuals were caught. And so it's like, let's just be honest about what's really happening here. But it's the same thing we're seeing with the whole CRT in schools. It's not even happening in schools, but you're passing these laws out here because there's actually an agenda and that's the suppression of marginalized peoples. Exactly. Uh, but in terms of your organization and what you do, uh, what other kind of initiatives are you working on right now in addition to taking unhoused people to the DMV to be able to get voter IDs or identification okay. themselves? Uh, so we help all sorts of folks, uh, folks who are unhoused, returning citizens, elderly, a lot of young people. Uh, you know, we work with the Detroit public schools because quite a lot of high schoolers are getting out of high school and they can't get the IDs. They need to start their lives, and so uh, we do that. You know, a lot of our work is focused on IDs. We also have a program called Vote by Mail in Jail because there are actually hundreds of thousands of people who are incarcerated, either because they've been convicted of misdemeanors or more likely because they've been. Uh, jailed pretrial because they just are too poor to afford bail who can vote. And so we run a national program to help people who are in jail be able to vote while they're incarcerated, uh, which they have the right to do. But uh, outside of Vermont and Maine, who are great, there aren't a lot of places that are really helping them do it. Uh, you know, our, our goal is uh, to help people get the ideas they need for their lives, but then also to help the people who almost never have the opportunity to vote, either because they don't have IDs, because it's so impossible for them, because of the micro barriers we put up, because they're incarcerated, to be able to make their voices heard at the polls. All right, and I know the midterms are not that far away. They kind of just seem right around the corner, as well as there are a lot of other elections going around. Is there anything that you all are going to be invested in in the next few months that you want to get the get the word out about? Yeah, you know, my big thing is I get it, people are exhausted. We've had three really draining elections in the last few years. But enthusiasm around this election is really down. And folks, it's midterms, it's important, it matters. There are over 200,000 races around the country. If you're not interested in Congress, 
your city council person is probably running or your mayor. And we've got to get people uh, to understand that we can't just give up. Uh, we really have to keep fighting. All right, and so if people want to find out more about you, follow you, follow your work, where can they catch you on social media? At Spread the Vote US on all channels. All right, fantastic. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for all the work that you do. It's so incredibly important that people do get out to vote. I know they haven't seen necessarily the results that they've wanted in the last few years, but we gotta fight ahead, otherwise we could lose everything. So thank you so much for joining us. Kat Calvin, that's a founder of Spread the Vote Project ID. Thanks so much. Thank you.